The content of CPR Unplugged is designed for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as mental health treatment or medical or mental health advice. Details such as names and locations may have been changed to protect individual privacy. Hello and welcome to CPR Unplugged. I am your host, Ben Edwards, and I am ecstatic and it's a pleasure for me to have our guest today. She's a woman who's helping individuals, whether it's athletes, actors, actresses, and just people in general, um, really find their voice and challenge their fears. And she is um, working with Apple in doing so. And uh, without further ado, welcome Sarah Mornell. Thank you, Ben. Hello, hello. I don't know if that was the best intro. I probably didn't do you justice. So if you could give a little more insight to what I was saying and kind of what you feel, some of your background, please. Sure. So I have, I've, I was an actress for about uh, 25 years, 30 years, just quit the union last year, which felt pretty good. And coaching sort of found me. Uh, I started working with actors at a very, very high level and began creating a method. Several years into that work, I was approached by an athlete whose wife had worked with me and he wanted me to work with him on his game of baseball, which I knew nothing about. So I spent about three months working and developing a program uh, for him with him that incorporated the athletic frame of mind with the artistic spirit. And I think traditionally those have been kept separate and that work started translating into all arenas. And what I found is that we carry a lot of voices inside, voices that we've been told, you're not good enough, you're not thin enough, you're not rich enough, you are not this enough, yada, yada. And then the stories that we actually carry that are our own become very muddled in that. And what I do with actors is flipping really what actors have been trained to do, which is act on its head. And I teach actors how to stop acting and be authentic versions of themselves. That work was, I was approached by Apple about four years ago to work with their Apple One division. It was Beats One to help entertainers in front of the camera and behind the camera. Uh, So the work started getting larger and then I started noticing that connection was really becoming an issue, especially with everything going on with COVID. And so I started working deeper in this development for actors, for people, for humans in terms of connection and finding your authentic voice fearlessly. Great. And so you had, you mentioned that you have this technique. You do have your own specific technique, correct? Nail method. Yes. Nail method. Yes. Great. So, and, and, and like you said, the difference in your method to most people's method in general and connection is that you're really there to help people find their voice versus what they've been taught their whole life. Right. Yeah. I think our story versus the stories we've been told, those are very separate, yet we carry the voices that from teachers, from parents, from society, and those become ingrained with us. And then it really starts muddling who we are authentically and who we want to be sure. and crippled by what we've been told and what we've carried. And we don't even know what the differences between the voices and I believe that actually it was it was Barry Zito the athlete who I worked with his quote I think defined really what I did and do which is Sarah Mornell will introduce you to the parts of yourself you would rather not know and then help you to bring those parts to light and integrate those into the whole 
ultimately bolstering the performance. Yeah. And that's what I think I do. It's, it's, it's hard work because it means going inside and confronting all of the parts of you that I think people spend a lifetime avoiding running from or repressing. But when we fearlessly go inside, then we have the confidence and we become fearless in really knowing who we are and who we want to become and what we want to be in this world. And that goes well with just mental health in general, right? As therapists, we, we work with clients to try to assist them and guide them into that, those dark places if they, if they are dark, right? Or those happy places to empower and to show them that there is the light. So that work is very similar at what you do. So with that being said, you have what seems to be a lot of weight, right, on you from all these individuals and you have a high, a high position with a lot of pressure from the industry and other things. How do you manage that? Ooh, I think that answer would have been very different. And I recently, by recently, I mean, as of March, 2020, have come to terms that I am bipolar. I have type two bipolar manic depressive and have been on medication since February of 2020. And that has totally altered my life. So this journey that I've been on has been lifelong for me. Um, so I want to answer your question, but I also want to say it's been very different once I tackled the mental illness that I've been struggling with my whole life. Now I do all kinds of things from working with shaman and shaw women, energy work, lighting a candle, that's the woo-woo stuff, to making sure I'm drinking enough water, making sure the stimuli is a big one. Because if when I do get a lot of stimuli, the part of me that loves that high, I want to keep revving. I want to keep going. And with technology, with classes, with everything that's going on energetically in the world, as someone who who has bipolar, it feels like I can get addicted to that. And if I'm not very careful, I will rev too high and then I will have a manic episode and crash. Now, this is the first time in my life I have only had one episode and it was manageable. This is the first seven months of my life that I've experienced not having a manic or low depressive episode. So I'm reading a lot of books. I'm doing manifest now. I do, you're a badass at making money. I have been the work internally that I'm doing feels like the work that we're doing with our country in terms of trying to shift this really tough negative pull, but the, the standard stuff, eating healthy, working out, making sure I'm getting sleep, getting some outside time and working to stay present and see what's in front of me. That's what I'm doing right now. Yeah. A lot of self-care. Absolutely. And, and things to ground you. Down, down, down time. I take one day, probably every two weeks and it's like a no talking day. I'll hand my phone over to my partner for two days because the first day I'm sort of reaching for it. I want it. I want my computer. I want my phone. I want to keep working. I want to keep creating. I want to keep doing. And so I have to make sure I manage coming down from that. And I, I used to just hibernate and watch TV all day and order food in. And that was the way I just sort of tuned out the world. 
Good. So with that, with you saying that, I want to kind of rewind yeah. uh, 20 or so years and give me an idea when you started realizing the symptoms, how, how did they impact your life? What kind of symptoms did you have and what did, did it do to you at that time? Yeah. So I am a child of a psychiatrist, uh, quite famous, like was on Oprah, wrote books. He did the Dr. Booth show. And my mother is a psychiatric nurse. And I grew up in the 70s. And at that time, my parents always had this joke that like the most screwed up kids in the world were the middle child of two shrinks. Well, I'm the middle child of two shrinks. And somehow I think they thought it was okay. But as a child, I was painfully shy. I stopped speaking really for like five or six years. And then when I was nine, I went to school and I ate hemlock. I'm an actor, right? So it was had to be very dramatic, but I was nine and it was poison. I told a friend, they sent a ambulance to the school. It was a really small country school, like literally surrounded by cows and they pumped my stomach. And I went and saw a therapist after that. And I didn't like her. I remember getting very angry because she was like, okay, let's play checkers. I'm like, all right, cool. Let's play checkers. And then she was pretending to play and asking me, like, if I ask you a question and I get your checker, then, and I was like, lady, just ask me the question. But if you're going to pretend to play, then I'm just going to cheat. So therapy at nine did not go well. And my parents basically thought that it was, my mother was depressed and she had three of us right in a row. We were a year, year and a half apart. So she was out as a 20 something year old with three babies in the middle of the country. And they, I took on her depression because her mom died really quickly after my sister was born. So I was always very different and always felt like something was wrong with me. I would have screaming episodes after fourth grade where I come home and just rage and wet my bed real late in life. My parents dealt with that by giving me a blanket that would sound an alarm in the middle of the night. So the whole family woke up. So it was, there was a lot of, and, and when I ate hemlock, there was a lot of anger for my parents. You embarrassed us and they were Jungian and Freudian. And I don't think it worked with trauma. So I was on a lifelong I have been on a lifelong journey of, of trying to find help and getting help and a lot of therapy. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this show is I've had so much therapy and yet at 50, my life has completely changed because of the work that I've been able to do. And now I think, what about people who can't and don't get that help? And it all comes down to trauma and the way that my life was shifted and changed. I went to therapist after therapist after therapist, and it wasn't that I was suicidal. It was that I didn't want to live. I wasn't going to kill myself. I wasn't going to hurt those people around me, but I didn't want to live. And so every day was like this, just trying to get through. And then I would have these phenomenal highs where everything was color and beautiful and life was incredible. And I was on top and it was, you know, as a coach later on, that's when I started creating, I could sit down for two hours and write a year's worth of classes, like just like operating on such a high level and, and then the crash would come. So 
let me fast forward to about six years ago. I've been, you know, off and on therapy, building this incredibly successful coaching business at the same time, continuing an on-camera career. The pressure in Hollywood as a young actress was and is absolutely insan insanity. It is so wrong on every level and what they're projecting for young women. Like I literally went from being Ted Danson, a amazing man, but who's 25 years older than me, his potential love interest. And then I put on 10 pounds, went from a six size six to a size eight and basically was fired. And, and size eight is small for me. So so the pressure in Hollywood and everything that was happening, I was still like managing and still trying. The happiest place for me was actually working at a nursery school because I was surrounded by love every day. Very difficult, very, the hardest job I've ever had in my life. But I've been seeing a psychiatrist and now throughout the years been diagnosed schizophrenic, multiple personality, borderline, on the spectrum, bipolar, which early on medication just like killed me. I was catatonic. I'm very receptive to medication and I just didn't like it. So I was just managing and, and, and doing well, but the internal demons in the private hell was, was, was a lot. So I went and saw a psychiatrist for two years and he had suggested ayahuasca, which I thought was really interesting because he's a medical doctor and I hadn't heard of that. I wasn't ready at the time. So he, he brought in a shaman to work with me. Again, I thought that was very interesting. And the journey that the shaman and I went on was phenomenal. But after two years, the psychiatrist looked at me and he said, I think what we're running up against is early childhood trauma. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, I think you should see the licensed clinical social worker who I worked with named Will. He said, I think you should see Will. He's in my office. Mm -hmm. And I was like, all right, I'll do anything because I was in so much pain. And I went on a walk that day with my dog and I was like, what trauma, what trauma, what trauma? And all of a sudden it's like my body yeah. took a breath and the pain and the, my whole body started shaking and trembling and I could barely breathe. And it hit me that I've been through more trauma than most people I know. And I didn't even know where that was coming from. You know, I'm like this lucky privileged kid from a little town in Northern California. I mean, you know, I, the way I grew up, everything about me, I, I was told was wrong, everything. So I met with Will and for the first time in my life, I couldn't manipulate the therapist. Not that I was going in to manipulate. My mom was always like, you're so manipulative. You're so manipulative. It's just that I'd been around a lot of shrinks and for the first time ever in my therapy journey, Will was reading my body. And so just over five or six years ago, it, the memory started coming back and I am a survivor of early childhood molestation. And if you look at sort of what I told you about my childhood and if you've done trauma, trauma work, those are some very classic signs of early childhood molestation, which is horrendous. And it's also an epidemic and it's really bad and pe it disturbs people. So they don't want to talk about it, but it took 
me walking through my body, remembering what happened as a, as a little girl. And so that really drastically shifted and changed the story that I'd been told, which is you went to school when you're nine and you kill, tried to kill yourself because of your mom's depression. No, I hadn't talked in five years other than yes, no, maybe, you, you know, and so there were glimpses, you know, I called my mom. I said, did you ever pick me up from a castle? I, I was a baby. There was a castle because that's little memories. And, and Will always said, we don't poke trauma, which I thought was really helpful. You know, you don't have to remember. I had glimpses and I've remembered since, but it really altered the course of, of my life, but it also put into like it's things that started clicking in and making sense. Like, no wonder, no wonder. And then, and then people started opening up to me about their own stories and they're like, holy crap, this is, this is really bad. You know, I've just been watching Netflix's The Disappearance of Maddie McCann. And it's like, do you think people stole this beautiful little girl to like raise her to be a happy? No, there is evil in this world and children are being raped molested, beaten, abused, and we've lost our kindness and empathy for it because it makes us uncomfortable. Yeah. So when you had that moment where you had that insight that you're like, wow, no wonder, what did that experience feel for you to give yourself that validation that you did have a reason that all this has been happening? It wasn't just because of what you were told. Yeah, it was, I, I, I don't, that's such a great question. I don't even know if I could do, put words to it. It's sort of what I just got to see you do, which your listeners won't be able to see, which is like your whole body kind of expands and breathes for the first time. And it's, it's literally like a weight comes off and you go, oh, thank God. And there's an immediate forgiveness. Yeah. And it's like, it's all it to me it's like what's happening in our country right now where this this sort of underbelly of pus of disease is coming out and now it's in the light we can really we can now really tackle it so it felt freeing it felt liberating and it felt it felt like so sad yeah i was finally able to see this little girl and give her kindness, compassion, and empathy and love. So it was very powerful. Absolutely. So do you say what you've experienced? I want to put the, the little plug in there. Um, there's a book that um, the body keeps the score. I don't know if you've read it or heard about it. Have you? No. So it, it pretty much it goes through what you explained that a lot of trauma is recorded in our body, right? We're a big recorder. And at that age that you mentioned, we don't have the cognitive ability to have these memories and these thoughts and understandings, but our body keeps the score, right? It keeps the memory of these things. And like you experienced that you didn't have the thoughts or the memories, but your body knew what had happened to it. And that's how you were able to tune into it. So a lot of some trauma work, we focus on the somatic, right? The feeling sensation people get, because sometimes that's the truest symptom is how it feels in your body where at in your body and we kind of work from that so that's great that will was able to do that with you such it's such valuable work and when you are a survivor of any kind of trauma your brain does amazing things to protect you yeah and your body takes on so much 
and hold so much. And my, it's like my body was ready to let this go. My brain wasn't sure if I could handle it or fathom it because you can't fathom it. But in the hands of the right person and the right care, there's a way to navigate through this. And your body will tell you, and it's really cool. It's really, really, really amazing to, and, and it's work I've started to incorporate with actors now. Great. As far as I like how you said, don't poke the trauma. Um, how have you been able to manage that? I'm sure there's times where things do come up where you do want to poke it, but then how do you manage that to not do more than you feel is you can handle or want to handle? After working with Will for over a year, I felt like I was good. And then I moved from LA to Atlanta and when, but the memory wasn't done yet. And so four years later, when trauma started popping up and probably because I have gotten on the right medication for me, there was a memory that needed to happen. And so I was able to get in touch with Will and, um, and, and I have over the course of four years, like now and then I'll touch base with him or if something comes up. I immediately know that I need to, to, to just check in and, and see what's going on. And when this memory emerged in July, he had moved to Ohio and it felt important enough for me to travel to Ohio and do an EMDR with him. So I did, uh, two sessions and, my body was able to remember what happened. And that's also, again, I think July for me was a a huge shift because sort of the final pieces came in and it felt like from what I've heard people talk about a phantom limb where you're like, I know this was here. I know this was embedded, but it's gone and it doesn't feel right. But, oh my God, it, it was like something that had been with me for so long on Friday, we did EMDR and by Monday I was in a whole different space. Yeah. So just for our, our listeners, if you're not familiar with EMDR, it's eye movement and desensitization and reprocessing. It's a bilateral stimulation type of trauma therapy um, that many find um, that it is helpful for them. What advice would you like to bestow on to our listeners, whether they're struggling with m- mental health or they have loved ones that are experiencing it and not know what to do, what, what advice would you like to share? Don't give up. And there's a lot. So before I got to being accepting bipolar, I was like, no, it's depression, it's depression, it's depression. And the psychiatrist said, it, it was here in Atlanta a couple of years ago, he said, I think it's bipolar. So, but he said, let's try ketamine infusions. That, that altered my life in 24 hours. So if you are in a space where you need to have a drastic change. It's something after trying all kinds of medications, all kinds of therapies, all kinds of work, a lifetime of it. It, it opened my eyes in immediately and made me connected to something so much higher and so much more extraordinary. And it was like I opened my eyes and was able to see things for the first time and feel love, real, deep, unconditional love. Yeah. I felt it in my body. So 
for anyone who's who's really suffering right now and, and you feel like there's nothing out there, check into that. I'm not saying it's right. Obviously, I can't give medical advice, but I, I had a friend talk to me about it. That was a big one. Be very careful for yourselves about who you talk to. When I first, this is the first time I've publicly spoken about having bipolar. And I plan to be way more public about it because I think that I can help people. I hope I can help people by sharing because the stigma is so bad. And I brought it up to my brother and said, hey, this is something I've been struggling with. And his response was like, okay, well, um, I just would appreciate if you could have thanked me for the trip I took the family on. So that that's really hard. And there's, there's sort of a shutting down for people who suffer from mental illness and who are struggling with it and fighting through it. And there's not a lot of, a lot of curiosity, kindness, or empathy. And, and then I told one of my actors, who's a good friend, whose mother has it. And she was like, wait, what do you mean? Because if you say you're bipolar, that means a certain thing to me. And I said, no, Christina, I, I, I am. This is something I have fought through and kept from the people closest to me from a, for a very long time. And she asked questions. She loved me. She said, I'm here for you. And the people who sort of are like, oh, okay, and then just move on. Those are people for me that it's like, okay, you aren't safe or like cool for me to talk to about this. And that's fine. But find people who are curious and who will listen. We've, we've stopped listening or someone wants to share their story. You know, well, I've gone through this or I've gone through that. And it's very lonely and isolating when someone isn't willing to hear your your struggle and your pain. And it's so valid. Yeah. It's so um, important that you share that. Um, there's a lot of individuals out there that tend to run to the closest people to them to share these things with them. And they're not equipped to handle it. Um, they don't know how to react to it. They either shut down or they just give them some random advice or tell them to get over it, which like you said, makes them feel lonely and they have no one to turn to. So thank you for sharing that. It's so important for individuals that are listening to know that um, having someone who is just willing to listen. And if you don't have that, uh, connect with, with with services, right? You could get that. Yeah. It's so important to have because you are not alone. There's a lot of places that are offering sliding scale. And, you know, just because it's a close friend or family, my mom, her response when I told her a few months ago was, well, they say when the medication works, the diagnosis is right. And that was the end of the discussion. So I think finding a support system, knowing you are not alone and people look at me and see a certain person and I've lived through this struggle and I know how hard it can be. And my heart goes out to you and I want you to know that I have hope and I know that there's treatments out there and you have to put yourself first. You have to give yourself every single support that you possibly can get those books. Like I, I literally right now, just because of what's going on in the world and my own pull towards dark and negative is I have books everywhere. I have coaching books. I have Buddhist books. I have towel. I have, I mean, like the art of this and I, they're everywhere for me. So that I'm constantly reaffirming. I, 
work every day on gratitude. Gratitude is one of the smallest things that can make such a monumental shift. Do 30 days every single day, get up and write 10 things you're grateful for, even if it's the same thing every single day. And there's so many places now that are offering help. And if you find a therapist and it doesn't feel good for you, like honor that and know that there's, there's good ones and there's bad ones. And there's ones that are going to work for you and ones that aren't, but a lot of people offering sliding scale. And if someone isn't curious or, or compassionate, then just close the door and, and look for someone who is and share your story and, and, and know that you are strong and you can survive and you can get through this. It just takes a lot of work on, on you, with you, for you and provide support for yourself. Thank you so much for that. Um, is there any last words you want to shout out or, or promote? I mean, I know you have some big production coming soon. You've got something big coming for um, Atlanta and I hope to be a part of it as well. I'm super excited for you. So yeah, I moved to Atlanta four years ago, not knowing more than like five or 10 people and just felt a calling. And it's really become a purpose, which is to build a film and TV studio that will be 100% eco-friendly and sustainable from the makeup brushes we use to the solar panels that we have on our sound stages that provides female-friendly and equal opportunities for hundreds of thousands of people, hopefully here in Atlanta and Georgia, where we are empowering artists because I believe that if we stop beating artists up and treating them in this weird, old, antiquated way, but we actually educate and empower them, then we can change the world. So I just want to take care of the world and make everyone feel safe and loved. So I want to, I'm going to be building a, a studio here in Atlanta where we, we will have a two-year program, academy, a studio garden, a soup kitchen. I eventually want to bring the Morneau Method into prisons and really take the program international um, and help people in a way that I think Hollywood does, but we can do it a lot better. I want to help people connect, feel safe, loved, and heard. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share or shout out or anything before we close it? No, thank you for the work you're doing to anybody out there who's listening. You can find me on social media at Sarah Mornell. That's my personal Instagram. I go off. Also, that's another thing. You know, give yourself some breaks from stimuli including social media. I, I realize that when I go to social media right now, it's to help get Georgia blue and to fight for social justice. But I also need to take six months off because it, it can also really mess with our heads. So, but reach out and just, it sounds crazy to say, don't feel helpless, but just know you're not alone. And I do think that Ozark just did an incredible job of showing what bipolar can look like. And the, listening to the actor talk about the world of Ozark and how they're murdering and killing people yet they're worried about him because he's bipolar, you know, and that being sort of a, a, a metaphor for, for what it is, is like, yeah, we could be doing all this crazy shit, but you're bipolar. 
So I don't, I want to take the stigma away. I want to encourage people to, to share their stories and to know that you are amazing. You are powerful. You are strong and you're capable of everything and anything. And if you don't feel like that today, that is so okay. That is so okay. Start with kindness, compassion, empathy, and love for yourself. Also, get curious versus critical. That's a big one. Get curious versus critical. We go immediately to beat ourselves up. Well, what if shitty, horrible, awful things happen to you? You don't need to carry that. You don't, you don't have to beat yourself up because the minute you do, you stop yourself from growing. If you can give yourself curiosity, huh, I wonder why I'm being mean to myself today. Is that my voice or is it someone else's? So yeah, that's, that's what I want to leave everyone with is that and a big, huge hug. Hugs all around. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah. It was such a pleasure to have you. I appreciate you and your time and everything that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Got questions or ideas for the podcast? Or perhaps you have your own story to share. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at crisisprepandrecovery.com or call 602-281-7795. You can also find us online at cprpodcast.podbean.com or wherever you prefer to find your podcasts. CPR Unplugged was produced by Crisis Preparation and Recovery, Inc. The intro and outro music was created by Rob Wilson. The CPR podcast team includes Tamara Lamontine, Ben Edwards, Laura Kaufman, Rob Wilson, and Michael Magarinos. Special thanks to Jason Spisak for technical support. 